Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we dive into this excellent interview with my very, very good friend, Steve Woomert, the Associate Principal Trumpet of the Toronto Symphony, I just want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar with them, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. If you like your instrument, but you're interested in seeing what else might be out there, Houghton Horns is the place to go. They have an incredible selection of brass instrument makers in stock, including Adams, Bach and Conselmer, Eastman and Shires, Engelbert Schmid, Paxman, Time, Yamaha, and more. They even have vintage and consignment instruments available as well. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. So whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am here via Zoom with one of my very, very good friends, Stephen Woomert, who is the Associate Principal Trumpet at the Toronto Symphony. Steve and I have known each other for a very long time. We went to grad school together, or I was in grad school. Steve was an undergrad at Northwestern. Uh, we lived together for a year, which uh, at the time seemed like the best idea Looking back, uh, what's the jury's out for that kind of thing? Um, we had a lot of good times. Um, we, you know, played a lot of trumpet together at that time. I think we played Calls and Echoes. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Um, and so I'm excited to get Steve's uh, perspective on playing in Toronto and all the things he's, different, he's learned at this period of his time and his life. And I'm just stumbling over my words. So I'm going to get on with it and say, thank you, Stephen, for giving me your time and chatting with me today. Well, Ryan, thanks for having me. Good to see you again. It's been too long. Hopefully yeah. you can see each other uh, when the borders open. Yeah. Whenever that is. Whenever uh, yeah, that so, is. But yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm glad to be a part of your podcast. Yeah, man. Um, as always with these interviews, the the place we like to start is going back as far as is relevant for us to kind of understand how you got into music, and uh, we'll just go from there. So take us back to young Stephen. All right, young Stephen actually grew up in Toronto, so I'm living in Toronto now. So it's kind of a dream come true to be in my home city. Uh, and I come from a musical family. My dad was actually the associate principal trumpet of the symphony first. Or that's why we're in Toronto, and then. Uh, but I actually started on violin, played violin for a number of years. And then in high school, realized trumpet was way better and way easier, <laughs> at least for me. Uh, I did a lot of trumpet through high school. I was lucky to have uh, lessons with Andrew McCandless. He's our principal trumpet, who also studied with uh, Ryan I's teachers when he was at Eastman, uh, Barbara Butler and Charlie Geyer. So it's kind of a cool full circle type of thing. Uh, and then, so yeah, trumpet became my focus in high school. I was able to do a lot of interesting summer festivals, both in Canada and the States then. And then was lucky enough to audition and get into Northwestern, where I did my undergrad four years. And that's where Ryan and I met, as we mentioned, uh, which was, again, a dream come true. 
uh, it was a total treat to be uh, learning from, you know, two amazing teachers, well, three with Chris Martin uh, and other amazing colleagues and all the other amazing brass teachers at Northwestern. So I did my four years there, was able to do a lot of really interesting things, very fortunate uh, for playing development. And then after my undergrad, I was kind of burnt out of school in terms of like academics. So I was like, oh, I don't really want to go do a master's. I had not really started auditioning yet. I didn't feel quite ready. And then I ended up, so I ended up coming back to Toronto to do an artist diploma at the Glen Gould School. Again, with Andrew McCandless, our principal trumpet. And that proved to be exactly what I needed. It provided me time to play, not too much, hardly any academics, but what there was was very beneficial, but time to really absorb what I learned for, for the four years at Northwestern. And that's where I really felt that I progressed, uh, just having time to absorb, you know? Uh, so yeah, and then end of my second year, I ended up winning the job in the symphony. So it was a very fortunate uh, chain or uh, timing for everything. Yeah, myself, obviously, being somebody who won a job pretty early in their career, too. Did you... I mean, for me, it was like, cool, I did this thing that I've been trying to do for a long time, but it didn't really dawn on me that it's like, I kind of don't know what I'm doing because I'm like 25 and now I have like this job where I have responsibility. Um, we'll get into this. We can get into it now or we can kind of touch on it now and get into it later. But I'm just curious what the learning curve was for you stepping into... Um, not just that job, but your dad's job, right? That was your dad's job previously. Yeah, so that was a huge... Well, one thing good about the way our, our section runs it is everyone always has a lot to do. So even as associate, I get to do a lot of first playing. Uh, and then sometimes I play second, sometimes I play third, sometimes I play fourth. Uh, we Andrew really divides, divides it nicely, so everyone is uh, happy. Uh, so yeah, so it was a big, huge learning curve. And when I, well, this, is, this, is, this will be part of a longer conversation, I'm sure, later. Uh, in the podcast, but my first year we were doing just a crazy amount of programs, sometimes three programs a week. You know, I was 24, I guess I was 25 when I actually started. Uh, but it was like, Oh my goodness, how do you learn? Like I was literally going home at night practicing cause I had to, to save chops, you know, for the next program, the next morning, a different concert, pro like a concert one night rehearsal for another program the next day. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of just hang on for a while. <laughs> That's kind of what it is, right? Yeah. Just hang on. Um, I know, uh, feel free to like tell me that this is like not something you're super interested in sharing, but I remember um, seeing you or talking to Rachel when we recorded my CD, which is around the time you were uh, going for tenure. Mm. And I remember her saying it wasn't necessarily a straight line from I got the job to I got tenure. Do you want to talk about that process at all and kind of what you experienced through that? Sure. Well, that goes along with a lot of what I learned uh, and I'm still learning. So my tenure process was three years. The normal process is two years. Uh, so it's a long story. Uh, again, I got better throughout the whole process. First year went really well. No comments really about anything. Uh, second year through a variety of reasons, I ended up playing a lot of last minute principal on a lot of big things, which is amazing. A lot of awesome programs. Uh, but then at that point, I, was at, I remember Barbara Butler said to me, I called her. She says, you're now being judged as principal trumpet, period. And she was totally right. So obviously when you're playing principal all the time, people start judging you differently. So I started getting some more comments. Uh, a lot were contradictory too, which made it even more stressful on how to figure out what to do, what to fix. Because if someone says you're doing X, fix it, it's easy. But mine was a bit more convoluted than that. Uh, but I learned a lot. Uh, 
about how to get tenure, how to talk to people with that, with that people on your committee, that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, go to details into that. But it was extra stressful because you know, there was a big article. I was front page in the Toronto newspaper about taking over my dad's job. I and mean, what if I don't, what if I get fired? It's like, oh right. my gosh. Like there was radio interviews. I was like, oh my goodness. Uh, but it all worked out and for and it's all for the better. I'm a better player because of it. I hated it at the time. I, I was ready to quit trumpet if I didn't get tenure. Uh, but now it's a distant past. It's like, oh, whatever. I enjoy it now. <laughs> I enjoy yeah. my job now, so. So you said you learned a lot. I'm kind of curious if you can think of like one or two of the um, most important or sort of maybe not most important, but things that were like you learned it and you're like, oh my gosh, how did I not know this? Or is there anything like that? Or is it just like normal stuff you would learn on the job? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Totally. Yeah. Well, one of the things I noticed is, especially in my first couple of years, if there was a guest conductor well, any conductor, if I, even if it's a simple concerto or something, a kind of a nothing piece, you, you look at it, it's like, oh, it's a nothing piece. If I played it thinking that, the conductor would immediately say something to me, regardless of what it is. But I learned, wait a minute, why am I playing? I, I, I tell my students, limp. <laughs> just like, you're kind of like, you're playing, you're offering nothing, right? Uh, and then I realized that if I come in with an idea, even if it's something very, very simple, conductor never said anything. Hmm. Almost to this day, it's very rare they say anything. When you play with that, again, it's Ryan and I before us were talking about the teaching we had at Northwestern. Uh, it's all the stuff I learned. Offer something, put your, you know, all the things that you could talk about. Uh, but I just wasn't doing it enough. Especially yeah. in, in our hall, we sit so far away. There's like literally like 20 feet between us and the back of the violas. And then the string section starts. So you just kind of, you feel like you're back there kind of like, but you still have to play even extra uh, play with even more intent, I, I learned. And as I'm still learning. Uh, yeah, this is an interesting thing for me because one of the lessons I learned when I was in Indianapolis, I was, I've shared this story before. I've, you've probably heard the recording many times of that quiet city where I like failed pretty hard. And the lesson I learned from that was like, instead of like trying super hard to play the trumpet, maybe I should just take a good breath like release and play like balanced and relaxed or whatever it is. And, but it's like, that's a lesson I had learned over and over and over again throughout my education, but somehow I like forgot it. So for you to say, these are things that I had been sort of taught, but then maybe it became more real in the actual context. Why do you feel like there is a possible disconnect of how you could have not thought of that? Does that make sense? Like, yeah. why did it take like, oh, I'm struggling to do this. Oh yeah, I remembered this thing versus like, what do you think the disconnect was? It's a good question. It's just time. It's being, your, your mind can only go, well, the mind's probably going in a million different ways. You're probably sitting there being worried about something, another issue in your playing, or like, like for me, it was even until a couple of years ago, my first attacks, you know, I'm always, or playing, I went through a phase where I couldn't, no one ever noticed it, but, but I could never play where I wanted to play. So maybe I was too like into making that work. You know, if that, if that was good, then I was happy with everything else. Um, but to me, as, as you said, too, talking about the good breath is always one thing I learned to always do again, us, like nuts and bolts of trouble playing is plan out your breath two beats before every entrance, you know, duh. Of course you learn that in school, right? Sure, but sure. you just, but, but it's kind of like golf. I don't play a lot of golf at all, but like, let's say someone gives you a tip and it works for a while. You only focus on that tip and then your playing is good for like four holes. 
but then your plane goes downhill because you stop thinking about everything else, right? Right, right. Well, this is interesting then because obviously good playing is a balance of a lot of things, but I do believe there's merit in kind of what you described of like, well, there's this one thing that seems to be really holding me back. So do you have like a process for how you balance some of these things? Or is it literally just like you're moving forward with all the information you have and then when something starts to not work or you're like getting different feedback, you're like, oh, I guess maybe there's more that I need to be focused on. Uh. Yeah. So one thing actually that I, th- I think to help take my playing to where I was able to win a job was finding the right combination of fundamentals that I needed to do every single day that I have to hit. And that took me a long time. And now I've kind of got a base. I'll adjust it, of course, depending on what you're talking about, what's needed. But I have, I've kind of figured out what I need 20 minutes in the morning, whatever happens to be that I have to hit. I can go a couple days without doing it, but then it'll come back and bite me. Um, but yeah, it's, I think a lot of my stories are going to be from Barbara. Is, it's like your, your Miss Butler is all your, your whole, your playing's like a, a huge stove with like 20 burners on it. And you have 20 different things you're trying to keep going. Oh, turn up the heat on that. Flip this. Turn down the heat on that. You know, it's a constant battle, right? And I'm sure there'll be times in five years where I'll forget one little pot over there and I'll be like, oh, got to go work on that. Uh, so I guess it's just co- trying to have constant awareness of how your playing is. Yeah, I think this is such a good and important thing to talk about because I don't think everybody... Like one of these principles that I really hold dear in my own playing is a principle of honesty. And it's basically coming from a place of like, if something is wrong, I need to be real about like what it could be instead of sometimes we're just like, wow, maybe I just like won't practice that and pretend Mm -hmm. it doesn't exist, you know? (laughs) And I think when you get into a job where you're having to balance, especially an orchestral job where you have to balance so many different styles and abilities and you're, like you said, one week you're going to be playing a huge program, the next piece or next week you're going to be playing a a nothing kind of thing. Like balance is a huge part. And so I think for me, again, honesty is a good place to start from and what you're saying, awareness, like just being real, like something is wrong, I need to figure it out, and then trying to drive awareness from that conversation. I think, um, I don't know if you have any so, anything expanding upon that or if that drew, drew any thoughts out of you. Uh, yeah, just always being aware. Or Yeah, I liked what you said about practicing what you're not good at and finding that, you know? Yeah. For me, I know exactly what those things are, and that's what I practice. Someone can probably hear me practicing saying, that guy's a, or someone's walking by the, the front of the house and you hear me practicing, if that guy's a professional. It's like, yeah, because I need to work on those things. Sure. Uh, but then it's it's also knowing not how to dial in what you need to do for that week too and looking ahead and that kind of thing. And that's what I found really hard in my first couple of years. Our, our schedule was just insane. We've, through various contracts, have gotten less services per week and less programs, but it was insane. Like, uh, we might have a huge, like, John Williams pop show one night and then the next morning we're rehearsing like a touchy Mozart thing and then like a light classics on the weekend you're like with like other hearts it's like what how do you prepare for that so it's, it's a bit easier when you don't have that quick change but that's a fun challenge to have and especially right now I miss that challenge not sure <laughs> not having the orchestra going so yeah it's like a it's like almost a specialized thing in and of itself like you're you have a Friday night or maybe a Thursday night something or a Friday night something and then you have something the next morning and it's like if you could, you know, for me now, not having played much of the orchestra, you can just like build your perfect system, you know, your perfect life. But 
Um, it's not quite that way. So I feel like, yeah, the skills for being a successful orchestral trumpet player are slightly different than the skills for just being a successful trumpet player, even though a lot of them do overlap. There's like some other ones. And I would say balance is like the top, the top of the list for, for both sides. Actually, I totally agree. Actually, one thing I, I did a couple notes here just to things I don't want to forget. Because uh, when you when you said what we might talk about. Um, well, first thing I find the older I get, Actually, this is a good story from, I told some of my students about Chris Martin. I was in a lesson with him and everyone kept telling me like my first, second year, all, all the way through university, you need bigger, richer, fuller sound. You know, got to work on this. Yeah. And I remember being in a lesson with him. He says, you know what? You have a good sound. Your sound will progress and fill out the older you get and the bigger groups you play in. And I think that's happened, but also, because mm -hmm. he's talking about maturity, physical maturity, which is a matter of time of getting older and playing more, is that I find it easier to stay in shape and get less beat up as I get older. Maybe I just, I'm playing more efficiently, but I think that's just a, t a matter of some of it is ex just experience and time and physical maturity. Yeah, it's a uh, very frustrating thing, though, right? Because yeah, well, yeah, it's horrible because like you you go home you're like I want to get better and and do this and that, but you're like oh, just let the body uh, develop. My wife's a vocal coach, so she teaches a lot of singers and works with them. It's the same thing. Those sopranos don't really mature until they're you know mid twenties. So, yeah, like that, you know, that is an unfortunate reality for singers, too. It's like almost nothing you can do, like because your body just has to develop. And, you know, it's the same thing. I've learned this lesson in like working out, right? Like you can't make yourself get stronger any faster than it works. I mean, you could like eat a ton of food and get stronger, but you'll get like fat. Right. So I guess if you want to make that trade off, but it's the same thing with any kind of skill development. It just takes time for the neural pathways to be established and for the body to kind of figure out what's going on. So it makes perfect sense. I just, for me, as somebody who has been in a hurry my entire life, it's really, really frustrating. Yeah. No, I, I know the feeling, but one of my favorite sayings from Andrew McCandless when I was studying with him is, he, I forget if I was thinking too much or something, but he said, just relax. Your body's smarter than your brain, mm. which so sometimes I have to remember that. It's like, oh yeah, just let, you know, the body will figure out how to do something rather than trying to like, oh, I can't play this leap because like, you know, you know, raise a tongue, do all that kind of stuff, whatever it happens to be, just keep practicing it and it might get better. But then, yeah. then, but then that's an issue. When do you leave it to the body and when do you attack it? Which, yeah, so. No, man, this is like, this is like what all of my stuff is based on. I'm curious, like, what is your take on that? Like, what's your experience? Is there any time that, it's like, okay, this is definitely something just to relax and let the body take care of it. Or this is definitely time to like get a little bit cerebral and think my way through it. Like, are there times where you know the difference? Yeah, now more so. But again, so what I think it's think? just time and experience. Uh, I remember before my last recital, I think I had already won. I, I was in a trial. So my job, I won the job. And the, actually, the audition was February. And then two of us had trials. The other guy was in April, mine was in May. And so I had my graduating recital like in March or April. And I was practicing a lot. It was good shape. Like uh, that's when my playing was really getting good. I was feeling awesome. But then I played too much. And like I would literally two days before my recital, I could hardly play. I would get tired after like a phrase. I was like, oh no. And actually, my dad told me, he's like, go. This is in the morning of like a Wednesday morning. I think my recital was Friday. He's like, go home. Don't play the rest of today. Don't play until tomorrow evening. No, it was the day before. It was a Thursday morning, and my recital was Friday night. He's like, just don't play. 
And then guess what? I, I had chops of steel for my recital. So that's yeah. one thing where had I been younger, I would have been, or had someone not have told me, I would have went and practiced and it would have been worse. So now I'm a bit more aware of things like that. When to relax, when to be more, when recovery will be better than practicing. Sure, absolutely. Um, for you, was there a difference between before and after tenure in terms of how you saw yourself, how you saw the job, how you approached the job? I mean, ideally, in before we have tenure, we're taking it super seriously. And after we have tenure, we're taking it exactly the same. But sometimes our view of the job can shift. Did that happen for you at all? Oh, 100%. I remember my, my shoulders dropped like probably six inches. <laughs> and then like a week later, someone came out to me and said, Steve, you always sounded good. But now after tenure, you're just like so much better. Nothing changed. It was only a week or two. It was nothing physically changed. It was just the freedom to do as you please i think it was funny is whenever i go play with another orchestra the last year to have had the opportunity to be play with some other canadian orchestras uh, as principal and it's almost easier because i'm not worried about what other people are thinking sure and as a result i'm probably playing better because you're just playing you're not worried about oh what's that guy over there gonna think and he's gonna walk by me and all for the next playwork not that i think those things but you never know like there's all these things that you don't even might not even know what's going on in the back of your head uh, so I just try and take that now. Now that 10 years over, it's like, oh, it's another one of the notes I made. Uh, just always playing it the way you think it should go. Unless told otherwise. Uh, Unless told otherwise. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. I mean, for me, this has been difficult to to internalize sometimes because, for an example, when I was in undergrad, I played in a quintet and we played uh, sort of commercial music sometimes. And if I was playing Tchaikovsky, it sounded like it was supposed to because I had listened to that. I knew what was going on. But when we played some of this commercial music, I just sounded like I had no idea what was going on. So I do think, and I would be curious for your take on how you may have developed this because like we played some repertoire at Northwestern, but you would have had to have like, there would have been a high learning curve in regards to how it goes for a lot of pieces. So, like, what was your way of just going from, like, I'm a good trumpet player who can play to I know how it goes and I can play it the way it goes? Like, what's your take on how we develop that? Well, I'm lucky to have a really good section and a really good principle to listen to. So that's an, a constant way of improving. You know, it's, it's always a good sound to hear. And, and the rest of, actually, our bra whole brass section is awesome. So there's always someone, there's always someone good to listen to. Uh, so that helps. Uh but actually, with this, we did a, a ragtime recording in October, a bunch of big trumpet stuff. And I, it was Saint, like a slow version of uh, St. Louis Blues, like a slow one. So I worked like a trumpet feature, the whole thing. So I recorded it at home here in the basement. I'm like, yeah, this is it. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> Listen to it. I'm like, <laughs> oh gosh, like, could, could I sound any more like straight up and down, like square? So I had to go back and retool it. Do sure. go listen to more things and then figure out my way. Just keep listening and, and recording and fixing it. I'm sure I still sound sound like a classical player, but I think it was better than my first attempt <laughs> when we finally recorded it. Uh, but just listening a lot and finding some, or yeah, just mimicking, right? Copying yeah. and, until you know how to do it. 
And I think some form, some form of feedback too, right? Like you were talking, you talked about recording and then you're like, okay, that's not what I want. I'm going to go listen and try to make a new idea. And then you record it again. And it's like, I think this is from what you're describing. It's like one of the most effective ways to just kind of change our approach to something because we need to hear like what we actually sound like and not what we think we sound like behind the bell or just on well wishes. And like you recording that much moves, actually moves the needle in the direction of progress. Oh, totally. And I, I get in ruts sometimes or if you're busy, you don't record yourself. So it might go like two months and then you're like, Oh, I'm recording myself. And you listen to yourself. I'm like, what? what happened to my clean articulation? Like sure. it's, it's going just a bit like, da, da, like, Oh, got get, got to get rid of that. So it should be something constant, but then I'm too lazy, which I shouldn't be. <laughs> but, yeah. I, I, I mean, even that happened to me today when I was recording the, the B shade too, that I was doing in my mind, I'm like going down, ding, down, and then I listened back to it and I'm like, well, that's not what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Well, same just, thing happened. Yeah, same thing no, up to me. Yeah, my dad and I played some outdoor Christmas carols for a retirement home in December. And granted, it was like, well, I'm think, talking Celsius. It's probably 20 Fahrenheit outside, cold, and we're playing like just trumpet duets. And we, I listened back to like a recording on a phone. And I was like, why is my articulation sucked? <laughs> so then, guess what? I went and practiced like my articulation. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but that's actually. Speaking of articulation, this is one of the big things I think helped me. I never paid attention to articulation as much as I should have. Now it's my main focus when I practice from the very first time I play in the morning. Uh, and that's helped my consistency and uh, just feeling more comfortable in the job. I think you had asked something about that before, which goes back to, well, I remember you practice this a lot. And you remember, you remember Dave Binder, of course. Oh, yeah. So Dave, for those who don't know, is when I, we were in the same year at Northwestern, he won co-principal in Finnish National Opera? Yep, yep. So, we interview, I interviewed him like oh, two months ago. Okay, perfect, yeah. So I remember he would just, pl- we were in the same dorm freshman year and stuff. Uh, and Dave would, and he's now, yeah, you guys know who he is. Uh, he would just play Arvin studies. Like just the basis, basic ones. Da, 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 da. I remember thinking like, because I was an idiot. <laughs> it was like, well, more, less more so than now. I was like, why is he practicing all this? He just played for hours. Like, I'm like, why is he practicing? He can play those. But now I understand why he was so good so young. Because mm-hmm. he was doing those things. So I've started practicing those basic arbons just like by the hour. Varying articulation, recording it short, long, accented, loud, going back and forth really quickly. Uh, which I never really did, but that level of simple stuff, practice in incredible detail. That's been kind of my one of big one of my big changes in my well, this is the thing. You talk about comfort level after tenure. I think that the physical comfort allows more musical comfort, right? Sure. I'd agree. So I, yeah. So those, I think that was part of it too. The more physically comfortable I am operating my piece of plumbing, the more I can play. Yeah. I, I totally agree. It's, it's a lot of what I am. It's like, a, you know, the philosophy I'm moving forward with is if we can understand how to prepare for certain things to, to bake consistency into the final product, feel like it makes it easier to ask more musical questions, take more musical risks when we expect our trumpet playing to be there the way we want it to be. So here, that's actually a question for you, because I talk about with students a lot, like, well, it's like the whole wind and song concept, but also goes hand in hand. If you're not playing a musical phrase, you're not going to be able to play it. But if you're not playing well, you can't play a musical phrase. Yeah. 
So it's kind of like a, I don't know exactly what I'm asking, but you know what I mean? It's kind of like a, which one do you focus Chicken on? Chicken or the egg? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I have unpopular opinion on this. I, I think I, it is, hear it. <laughs> I think it's completely acceptable to divorce yourself from the music and and assign drills to yourself to understand the production of your instrument better. Mm-hmm. And I think that ultimately that needs to serve better music making, right? Music making is all that matters in the end. But I think there's a lot of people who are like trying to make music and it's incredibly frustrating because they don't understand the production of their instrument. And so I've had some success with people like writing routines for some of my clients and breaking the routine like into the individual aspects of what it is to play a trumpet. So first attacks, long tones, a little bit of flexibility, some upper register, some lower register. And we're going to like, we're going to see where things might break down so you can get a better picture of what success would look like. Then when we go and put it all back together, you're operating with knowledge and not just like, well, I'll just move some air and see what happens. Yeah, I, I agree with you more. The older I get, the more I do think of the physical stuff. I never thought of the physical things before, or even physically in the way the mouth is shaped and the way the tongue moves and all kind of stuff. I never thought about that until I started teaching more. And now, guess what? Now that I'm thinking about it, it helps my playing. Sure. I used to be afraid, probably when we were in school, I wouldn't I didn't want to think about that. I'm like, oh, that'll mess me up. Like like where I put where I put the horn now is where I put it when I was eleven years old. So I'm like I don't want to mess with it, but now I'm comfortable enough where I can do something. But it is interesting. I, I remember it with, with Miss Butler. Sometimes in lessons, she'd be like, if I had an issue I was working on, she wouldn't demonstrate if it was something that she really worked hard to fix. She wouldn't demonstrate it poorly, I mean. Right. Which I understand now. If I'm trying to like demonstrate something that they're doing, and but it's something I really worked hard not to, to do, I'm like, sure, I'm not going to mess with my body. <laughs> it's like, it's there, just let it go. But I guess if you're good enough, you should be able to have total control of what whatever the issue is, wrong and right. Yeah, and I think like what you're saying, this idea of paralysis by analysis, where if we overthink the physical, it can start to like really mess. I think that exists. I think that's real. But I think where I think we can be afraid of it too much and we can sort of not step into understanding how things work, like exactly for the reason you said, it's like, that's going to mess me up. So I think we just need ways to talk about it where it's like a useful, like it's a useful thing to dive into your production. And it doesn't just like turn into all you're thinking about, like, oh, I have to like put my tongue right here and then I have to release the air at like 3.2 miles per hour. Like, yes, that will mess you up big time. But if it's like, oh, like for me in my own playing, I've noticed if I breathe with the air right on my lips and I release in exactly the same spot, my my first attack consistency is like 99%. Well, that's like a physical thing I focus on. But it leads to more consistency, which gives me more confidence. And it's not, so it's, I think there's a balance in there, basically. Totally. Well, that's a pretty, in a good way, a general thing to focus on. A healthy, a healthy idea. That's, that's, I think that's the, what it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is like, I, I've gone fairly overboard with trying to understand, like, what is, like, in the gym, when you do this, you're like, when you're deadlifting, like the bar needs to go in a straight line. Like that is what needs to happen. But like everybody struggles with keeping the bar in a straight line for different reasons. Yeah. 
And so coaches have come up with various cues, like physical things for you to think about. That's not move the bar in a straight line that will result in the bar being moved in a straight line. So yeah. like some people, their back tightness, like that's hard. So it's, they, they say like, keep the bar on your shins. What well, forces your arms to lock the bar on your body, which keeps your back tight. Some people will say, push the ground away rather than pick the bar up. Like these different cues that help the overall motion look like it's supposed to. So in my opinion, the same thing exists on the trumpet or on, an, on a musical instrument where it's like, there is a way of like, we want healthy airflow no matter what, but everybody might struggle with creating that healthy airflow for different reasons. So giving them some sort of thing to think about that results in he healthy airflow is not thinking musically, but it will result in healthy playing, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm on board with you 100%. Yeah. And that's that's probably individual for each person too, right? Yeah, and like that's the search, right? That's what you've talked about. Like your search has been, I kind of know myself better now and what things stop me from being able to produce a healthy trumpet sound every single time that I play. Yes, yeah, so then the question is, how do we, if you're, if, if it's Steve from 10 years ago, is it, do you think it's just a matter of time or do you think there was something I could have done or someone like me could do ahead of time to accelerate that process? I mean, the only way I think someone could accelerate the process is to just do things in the right order. Like I don't, and I'm not saying that it would accelerate the process, but if, if people are putting things in an order that's causing frustration and the causing of not establishing good habit, the, the way you would describe this in the gym would be like, if, if somebody struggled and had to start over time and time again because their form was all messed up. And so they were like, oh, I'll get to 315 pounds on the squat. But then like my form starts to break down. Well, I got to then go backwards and figure out the right form and then see if I can move forward again. But you'll hit another plateau. Then you got to go backwards and then you can break through that. Like a more optimal way would be to spend an intense amount of time at the beginning doing everything you can to make sure everything is stacked correctly so that your progression is not nearly as limited long term. So it's slower in the beginning, but I think it's faster in the long run and you get further with fewer f mental frustrations. I like that. I That reminds me of a, a scenario. One of my students is uh, he wants to be, uh, I can't remember the name. He wants to like make string instruments and repair them. The bow maker, right? Yeah. Is Whatever. that what it is? A bow maker? I don't know. No, I don't Ludier know anything about strings. But, <laughs> exactly. But really uh, smart kid. But we were talking about, we are playing basic etudes and it just wasn't quite, quite there. I'm like, yeah, if you leave it like that and then keep going and then finish it, you have this blemish that's always there. And I was relating it, I was painting, I'm into working on my old car, right? So I was painting a small section of it and I was lazy and I did it outside, just a small area. You know, I prepped, I prepped it, sanded it, beautifully prepped job, two primer, bunch of coats of color, and then two coats of clear. But all thin, took me the entire day. And since I was lazy, didn't do it in the garage, wind picked up right at the end and blew dirt into it. I could have picked them out and, and it would have been fine, but I would, I would have seen all those little specks of dust. But what would... If I was a real paint shop, what would I do to make that proper? If that happened, I'd let it dry and sand it all back down. So I was trying to, because since he's yeah, refinishing, right. since he's refinishing wood instruments, the same thing. 
you know, the prep of the wood, how are you going to treat it? So I was trying to get him with that. Like you're leaving crap in your paint, in your varnish. And that kind of clue. He's like, oh yeah, I can't like, you know, but if I remember the exact eight, it'd be a better description of it. No, I actually, that's a really apt analogy where it's like this, like you'd have this and you have dust in there or dirt in there. And it's like, well, your only option really is to like kind of start over or at least pull a few layers back so you can redo it the right way. And like, yeah, that having not having to do that would be the fastest way to do it. And we are, well, I, and I put it this way, since you're training, well, this is to, he's not, doesn't want to be a trauma player, but uh, as to be a trauma player, we have to train to be the absolute best of the best, period. For employability or just to respect the art form, right? That best, the best paint shop you can get, like when you watch these shows, these amazing paint shops, they have that same level of dedication. They don't ex- ex- uh, accept anything less than 1,000% uh, accuracy or perfection. It has to be totally perfect, right? And that's why I try to impart on my own plan. Like, if I really want to get good and get better, I can't let anything slip. Otherwise, I'm leaving dirt in that paint. And then I have to look at that forever, and it'll be there. Because it'll be a seed in my playing, which will never be a seed of dust, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> right? But okay, I'm going to roll with this because the language you used, I think, is spot on. But I think a lot of people can feel like if the goal is to be the best of the best, and I don't become the best, it's a waste, or I failed. And so, to me different language that would possibly impart the same thing is not necessarily the best of the best, but the best you can possibly be uncovering every every stone. And what I like about your analogy actually is that like them giving a thousand percent, making them the best of the best in terms of like their paint jobs or whatever they're doing, like you can also do that. Like that's not a thing specific to them. People who want to do great paint jobs, they can say, well, what makes these guys special is a thousand percent effort. I can do that too. And I think that's more what you're saying, this idea like regardless of how good somebody else is, you can employ some of those habits that make them the best. Yeah, actually I agree back to a thousand percent with you. It's not, it's, yeah, that's what drives progress is the commitment to excellence, right? It's the same with any any sport or any, any high level thing. But yeah, I like what you said, the best you can be because again, it's no point comparing yourself to other people. It's you can only improve on, upon yourself, right? So Yes, that is a very easy thing to say. Do you feel like you've struggled with comparing yourself to other people, possibly even being at a place like Northwestern with like high functioning trumpet players and musicians? Like have you struggled with that at all in your life? Oh, hundred percent. I remember my first year there being like first week i'm like uh oh why <laughs> why am i here i remember freshman year the first solo class hearing these freshmen play like uh like tomasi i'm like what people actually i was like people actually play that piece and he's a freshman <laughs> i was like it's like no one ever plays that piece that's too hard or stuff like that yeah uh but then what kept me is night I talk about this a lot too. It's, you know, as Barbara said to us, you know, go play duets with your fellow classmates. Of course, when we can in regular times, because that person might have a better low range than you, but so you can learn from them, but then you might have a better way of uh, blowing through phrases better than that person does. So you can learn from each other, you know? Mm. So that's what I realized. Like we, everyone has their own strengths and you can draw off of them. Uh, and then the other thing I've liked it, yeah, I'm sure you talked about this. It doesn't matter when you got that skill, whether it was when you were 10 or 35, you then have that skill. 
right? right. It doesn't matter who got it first, which I, I always have to keep that in my mind. Uh, but my low range, I don't know if you remember, I could not buzz below a low C or below in my junior and senior year. Actually, I started getting my senior year. So my low range was always okay, but never great. Now it's one of my strengths, right? Because right. I practice it for so, so long. And people who like meet you now are like, if you tell them you struggle with your low register, they'll be like, what are you talking about? Exactly, right? So that anyone can be that way, you know? I totally agree. And I mean, this is a lot of what I feel like I've been trying to dig into is maximizing potential, right? Like this should be the goal, ideally speaking, and not necessarily trying to, I'm going to win a job as this arbitrary goal, but the goal should be, I want to maximize my potential. And if I happen to be at a level where I can win a job, that's a cool application of it. And, you know, I would say observing the two of us in school, it's one thing that actually frustrated me about you because you were like trying to do well in school and you were trying to like do your due diligence to like be the best you could be and maximize your potential while I was just getting drunk all the time, <laughs> resting on the fact that I could just skate, sort of skate by, right? Like I tried yeah. hard, especially with the trumpet, but there's an amount of like, I'm just trying to get by. I don't really care what I'm capable of. It took me a lot longer mm -hmm. to get to like, I should care what I'm capable of. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, looking back, I remember... It doesn't matter what school it was, but I remember being like... This is also growing up with a family member in the orchestral business. It was like... I, I just... That's what I thought I would do. Or nothing, basically. Not mm -hmm. in terms of in terms of music. I don't mean like nothing else in terms of like what I would have done for a career, but... So I kind of went to Northwestern being like, I'm here to win a job. But at the end of my four years, I wasn't near ready for it. Sure. Uh, so it was a lot, so everybody, you know, oh. I remember thinking of what else I could do, but progression happens at different times, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I hope I still progress. I'm sure I will if I keep applying the concepts that you're talking about, right? And that's the fun of making music for a little. I totally agree. It, like, it's motivating and exciting to see that as far as I've progressed, I can still see that I've gotten better. Mm-hmm. Like what ways do you, you talked about your low range being one of them. Are there other ways that you've seen like significant progress even after winning a job when we're supposed to be like quote complete? Like what other ways have you seen um, progress in your playing? Endurance, for sure. Uh, accuracy. Well, I'm still not 100% accurate. I, I'm more, maybe it's more confident so that I play better. Yeah. And then I miss less. Sure. <laughs> maybe that's part of it, right? It could like, that's be. That's legit. Um, I think playing, having a general idea how I want things to go before I even play it. And if I'm sight reading something like a solo or even an etude, just more of a natural sense of musicality, but that's just maturity, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I never really had any huge issues, like issues in my playing. It was more of just me taking the... Oh, yeah, sight reading is much better. Like, I used to look at, like, these... Even, like, a Getschel... I look back at my books with the markings from this Butler being like, how did I do that in A? I remember spending, like, a whole week learning one A to, like, hours. Now it's like, oh, there you go. So everything. Everything gets better the more you do. Transposition. Yeah, sight yeah. transposition. Uh, but every year we do Messiah, and that it's always a struggle for me to get through it. Even though it's not that hard, traditional sound, right? Right. And then 
or not this year, but this past year, I went to pick it up and I could just play through it the first time. I'm like, oh, yeah. which then points to efficiency probably, right? Yeah, so and I, was, I think, I, I was going to say, I think like, sorry to interrupt, but the fact that you have a chance to come back to it regularly and like having that consistency to then gauge how it feels from year to year, it's like kind of a tenant that I have brought into my practice in general is like trying to have an amount of consistency not, but not necessarily daily consistency, but some amount of regular consistency so I can come back and see, all right, last week it felt like this, this week it feels like this, next week, so I can kind of gauge, like, am I progressing in the thing that I care about? Yeah, and that's this is what I always wonder too, maybe you have some insight to it is, I'm sure you've had this before, is you practice one thing and then you might not play it. Even in school, you might not play it for a year. And you might not have been practicing what you couldn't do as well in that piece. And you come back to it, and you can play it. It's just like other things make you better at other things, like a weird yeah. puzzle, right? And that's, I wish I could uh, make more of a scientific method on that, like what complements something else. But yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, I think it all supports each other, like you're saying. And I think, you know, if your articulation is struggling, like getting better at articulation like might make your tone production a little bit healthier because there's less interference at the beginning of the note, something like that. I think that's kind of what you're... I totally agree. Um, yeah, totally. That, that could be very, very possible. Uh, another thing, actually, I learned, I'm still learning, is you, you asked, asked well, what, uh, <laughs> um, what have I changed since school or getting the job? And yeah. it's taking original studies and modifying them for what I need. Yeah. Yeah. Like not just saying like, I, so I, I always talk about this. I'm like the Arvin book. It's an amazing book, but it can be used. He just wrote that the way he thought it should go, which is amazing. I'm not saying it's not, but there's no reason that we can adjust it to what we need at that exact time or whoever's method book. We can adjust it or even the Clark book changing. How are you going to do a Clark? And practicing and then practicing and practicing them in every different way possible. Yeah. I think I used to get stuck into just doing what was on the page and then thinking that was enough. I think it's like creativity too, right? It like engages your brain actually rather than just doing this sort of same thing over. You're like, how can I bring creativity in the practice room to help this specific problem? Yeah. Well, I bet you with weight training is the same way. You're not weight training. We're probably walking down the street or driving the car and being like, how, can, you know, tapping your fingers, like, how can I do that? lift better or my form you know you're always thinking about it i think trump's the same way yeah it has to be always on our mind being like walking down the streets like how can i do this what can i do differently it doesn't build real and talk about this like he wants the students to be like they're going into the practice room wearing a lab coat to do experiments yeah. i yeah. love that analogy <laughs> like i can't tell you the amount of concerts that i've played where during the rest periods i'm like thinking about my deadlift workout from earlier that day <laughs> and i'm like Gosh, I, I feel like that one rep, I could have just like, I could have just like kept the bar a little closer to my body. Like, it's like, a, it was obsessive for a while. And I don't think you, I don't think it's imperative that you're that way to achieve success, right? But like, you need to be that way at some point. Like, you may not have to think about it constantly, oh, yeah. but especially when you show up in the practice room, exactly what you're describing. I interviewed the principal timpanist of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. His name is Jason Haheim. And he 
he's done a lot of research in deliberate practice, right? So Anders Ericsson has like, he like interviewed and researched like chess players and tennis players and athletes and all these people who are like high functioning. And he developed this method of deliberate practice and what, what it requires. Jason brought it into like sort of more music specific terms. Before Jason became the timpanist of the Met, he was in, um, I forget what he worked in, uh, but he was like, a, he was a scientist. Like he did like, experiments and like studies on, I think it was I know, some sort of, maybe biology was his specialty, I can't remember. But he, his, de his definition of the deliberate practice is the scientific method applied to music. Mm. And it's like so simple, but you're like, yeah, that's actually, you're just like testing various things and seeing what happens. Yeah, well, it worked for him, clearly, right? It's, there, there's yeah. for sure truth behind it. But I didn't practice that way when I was at Northwestern. I was just like, I was just blowing through stuff, hoping that that was the thing that would make me better. I wasn't thinking through the process critic as critically as I do now. But wouldn't you agree, if I remember correctly, your undergrad, you were quite methodical in your practicing. You, uh, had I mean, that, you, had that, you had that basis there. I'm not trying to like rewrite history. I'm not trying to do a revisionist history. So that could be. What I remember about undergrad is I had a really good ear. And mm. like there were certain things that like, that ear allowed me to do at a high level. And I think I remember struggling with like consistency at the last like 5%, right? So like 95% of my performances would be like, wow, Ryan sounds pretty good. But there would always be that 5% of like something went wrong. And I, that is what, what I do now has helped to alleviate that last 5%. And it's just only in the way that I was structuring things in terms of I should go slow for this long and then do this kind of thing and then do this like I've gotten more methodical. So com it maybe maybe what you're saying is true. I can't remember that deeply, but comparatively speaking, not even close to what mm -hmm. I what I'm doing now in terms of what I used to do. It's clearly more effective. I feel I mean I feel that not only do you how much uh, this is an interesting question for you. Do you practice more or less now than you did when you were younger for in terms of like hours and, and, and stuff like that or the same? Uh, it really depends on the week. Cause well, actually this is another thing I, I, I'm, I kind of wrote down is especially in the last two years, I found myself more, more comfortable playing on the days of shows and concerts, uh, doing more of a healthy, yeah, I don't like to call it a warm-up, but a routine in the morning mm -hmm. to keep myself in. So what I used to do is like I'd be in good shape before the week and then I'll kind of tail off because we you know, and then rebuild for a couple of days. Sure. That's kind of a frustrating cycle. And then I've had more of the maybe it's just because I can feel like I can play longer now. But so to answer that question, I think I do a longer practice in the morning before a 10 a.m. rehearsal, for example, and more comfortable doing that. Um it, it ebbs and flows. If I'm in like a really into it trumpet week or mood, I'll practice more. I'll pick up uh, uh, etudes and, and learn them more yeah. so than before, just for fun. Also, because I can play them better now. It doesn't take me like eight <laughs> years to learn it. Uh, but no, we're, we're very fortunate. We're always playing in the symphony. Like we, we have quite a busy schedule, so it's. Uh, you kind of just stay in shape just learning the music. Yeah. I would say on average, I play a lot less, a lot fewer Ooh. hours, but I feel like I get more done, right? Because like yeah. that's that's the idea that I guess I'm I'm after here is like, 
that's kind of part of the maturing process too, is you realize like just throwing hours at your practice session is not necessarily the solution to getting better. Then yes, I do practice less. If I'm not into it, unless I have to learn something like last minute or something, if I'm not into it, I don't practice. I said, come back in two hours. It's not worth my time. Sure. Because I, I know that if I practice well for half an hour, I get so much done. Yeah. And then I always remember, I've always been kind of a morning person, but Rex Martin, the, I guess, former tuber, tuber professor at Northwestern. Is he still there? I can't remember. I don't know. He, he, I think he lives in like... Is he in Europe somewhere? Yeah. I forget where. Either way, I remember his students talking about every hour practice for, before 10 a.m. is worth two hours. So if I could, if I feel like I get an eight to nine or eight 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 forty five session in, I feel like I've gotten like a million things done. Yeah. If I'm focused and, and awake, uh, but yeah, efficient practice that's definitely changed. That's awesome. Uh, I'm gonna kind of shift gears here if that's chill with you. Um, I'd be very interested. I've wanted to know this for a very long time. Um, I think. A very common response to a son winning his dad's job could be basically full-on like nepotism, right? Yeah, like, okay. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like people could be like, oh, like he won that job because his dad had that job. And so I don't know if you if people actually like would say stuff like that or if you would sort of hear through the grapevine or if you were but I'm not saying that it is that, but I feel like that's like a that could, you could connect the lines like that, right? So like, I'm curious for you, what was it like to win your dad's job? Was there any kind of like weirdness about it for you? Or was it, I know like for you, it was like a bit of like probably pride too, just being able to like carry it on. But I'm just kind of curious for like the full spectrum because that is not only to win, like to win your dad's for, like job, that's like never, that can't like ever happen. So I'm kind of curious yeah. what that experience is like. Well, I think it worked out in my favor. First of all, it was all screened until the finals when it was three of us and then two of us were given trials and the other guy was, is it a, a really good player who I like a lot. Um, but I had to do my trial was playing first E flat and held on tour. And then I remember the afternoon of a concert, when we got back to Toronto, I had to go do a round on stage and then I had to wait for the guy. I, mean, I so I feel like I had to do a lot to get it. Yeah. And especially with my extended tenure process, I'm like, I don't even care anymore. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> I earned it. But no, there was never any uh, overt nepotism comments ever, really. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's because, I don't know. I don't know. But I never really had to deal with that a whole lot. Yeah, uh, like I said, it just can feel... I mean, again, I didn't think that. I know you're playing. Like, I know that you, like... I know, like, the way you work. Like, you deserve it. You know, I just feel like people who are outside who don't know, I feel like they're just like, oh... Like this young guy, it's like his dad. Like I don't know. I just was curious if that was like anything that ever entered your sphere, or if you were just so like so caught up in like I need to do this job, and I'm 25 that it didn't even register. Well, something I think changed for that specific audition is again. I feel like in the four or five months before then is when I started. So my playing was just getting better and better and better, uh, and I was subbing with a bunch of orchestras and. Being like, oh, this is at first I was like, yeah, it's really cool. I get to play with these professional orchestras, like leave school and go sub, like earn money and you know, all that kind of stuff. But then after a couple of months of that, I was kind of like, all right, I'm ready for my own job. Like, you know, I want to, I don't want to, I'm tired of being the outsider and traveling. Although that was a blast. I, I do miss that a little bit. Um, and then, so especially it being, you know, my dad's job that I grew up, he was there for 32 years. Or, yeah, 32 years, 33. I was like in my home city 
know, the first audition in the symphony since I've been in double digit ages and, and there hasn't been one since. So it was kind of like, it's this job or I'm not going to live in Toronto. So I remember walking in being like, I'm going to win this. It's mine. You know? And actually I learned that lesson from Rob Weymouth, an amazing player. One of my good friends, he's principal trumpet in the national or sorry, in the Canadian opera company here in Toronto and in the section of the national ballet, amazing player. And I remember when a few years before the symphony audition, I think I left Northwestern for this audition to come, to come to Toronto and do it. Uh, he was auditioning. I think he already had the ballet job. But I was in the elevator with him. It's so weird thinking about being in an elevator with people now. They're, <laughs> yeah. they're very strict. I was like, I was in the elevator with another person. <laughs> but I was like, hey, Rob, you ready for this? It's a weird list. He's like, yes, I'm ready. He gave me a straight up answer, like, I'm here. And guess who won? Rob. <laughs> he did. Right? I think I remember you telling me about that. Yeah. 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 And he, I remember his drive was like, you know, I'm sure the mental aspect of it is part of it. Has to be. Oh, yeah. So then go back to your nepotism question. Uh, I just never, I, it wasn't worth my time of thinking about. Sure. I was like, I don't care. You know, in no. two years, no one's going to care. So it no, never I, affected me. It's good perspective, too. It's not your actual business to like worry about what other people think. I, and I, I think it's a great perspective. And, um, yeah, I was just curious. I've always wanted to know like what that was yeah. like for you to step into your, besides, again, besides being proud, because I remember, you know, that article came out and I know like I'd heard you talk about it. And, but uh, I was just curious if there was any sort of negative effects that you may have felt, I guess. But the answer can be no. No, not in more than negative of the extra stress when sure. my future was uncertain. <laughs> yeah. Just, or even friends, like growing up, like, oh, you're in the symphony. I'm like, no, not anymore. What happened? Oh, like that was like my worst fear, like having to explain like why I'm not in the symphony to like people that I grew up with that don't know anything about music. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, but I never had to cross that bridge. Yeah. So until I get fired, don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, I mean, there's one other aspect of this I feel like that's interesting, would be interesting to mention would be um, you're married to... Uh, Obviously, your wife, my friend Rachel, we all went to school together. And she did. She, she had moved to Toronto to be with you, but you had, but when you were still getting tenure. So, like, if you wouldn't have gotten tenure, that would have been like a big, like, well, what are we going to do? Probably, right? Like, what was that like for you guys as a couple just starting out? Oh, yeah, that was huge stress. Uh, but in the back of my mind, I knew I would still freelance here in Toronto. I was teaching. Actually, I stopped teaching my first year on purpose. I don't want... Uh, actually, this is another thing auditioning. I don't know if you ever had this. When I was auditioning, I, I was teaching a lot of really young, not advanced students, to put it nicely. And I found I, was, I would play worse when I was teaching a lot. But of course, I needed the money, right? So I was teaching a lot. Uh, so actually, the two months before this audition, I said, I'm not teaching. I didn't teach. Um, but so I knew I had that. I knew I had a lot of other things I'd be doing. I uh, know Rachel went and uh, took an audition for an opera thing in Chicago. Uh, I was considering what to do. I was like, I was looking into other schools. I it's a long story. I was totally sour on orchestra and trumpet. Yeah. For those probably 12 months. Uh, but I ended up not having to worry about any of that. And now I love my job. I was going to say, like, does that ever like, <laughs> does that ever come back to bite you a little bit? Like not bite you, but does that ever come back of like, I felt this way, but because things worked out, I sort of didn't have to, 
deal with that? Or is it just like, no, nah, I was just sort of a dark time and it's, it's okay. Oh, it was a very dark time, but uh, I think I'm a better player because of it. I think in terms of getting tenure, I used to think, I always thought no news was good news. And all of a sudden I hear this bad news. Like what? No one's ever said anything. And so I had to go and I, I sought out the people on my committee and asked their opinion. And a lot of their opinions were contrasting. But I think the fact that I was just listening to their opinions helped. Of course, I tried to, to suit them all. But I think people wanted to be heard. So I don't know. If I was giving advice to people getting tenure, I think that would be something to maybe do proactively. Uh, I did none of that. I figured if the trumpets are happy, everyone's happy. Sure. And that's all I heard. But of course, I was young. I was still learning. I think I was doing a good job. But I, looking back now, like I played these pieces so many times already. It's only my seventh year. And I look at people who've been in the orchestra for 30 years, how many times they've played these pieces. And I'm sitting there playing for the first time. Of course, I'm going to sound green. Yeah. You know, I'll make all the notes and play well, but it's, it's just something different to it. Uh, so yeah, looking back, I'm, I'm glad I survived. But yeah, it's, but again, it's experience, right? Maybe, so then the question is, what could I have done better? I'm, could, I should, I sure, I'm sure I could have done things better. Uh, but Yeah, I, I don't... Yeah, I think about that. Obviously, you know, I didn't get tenure in Indy. And then I approached my tenure process here from that perspective. It's like when I got to Indy, I was like, well, I'm the principal trumpet. So I suppose it's my job to like make everything awesome, right? Like, of course, I wasn't thinking exactly that. But the idea that like it's my responsibility to like contribute and to say what I think. And I wasn't mean about anything. But like what I didn't understand was like, it will be okay. Like if something feels bad in rehearsal number one, it's gonna be okay. Mm-hmm. Like if everybody else hears it, I'm not the only one who's aware, and it'll work itself out. Of course, some questions are worth being asked, but like just basically chill, like to have chill when on the job and not feel like everything is like a crisis. I, I feel like that's one of the things that I wish I would have done, I suppose, differently. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to Alabama, because I was that way in Indy. When I got to Alabama, I was like as chill as possible. I didn't say much. I just like played my job and they were like, we would kind of like you to be a little bit more of a leader. But like that was good because then they were asking me to do that and I could step in versus like I'm doing it in a way that's like offending them or something. And that's tricky. Even as associate, I had that same issue because I'm still sitting playing principal all the time. But you need to be a leader at some point, right? Yeah. And you have to show, like, especially as principal, you have to show that you do have that leadership bone. So it's good. I think it's a good way you did it. It's wait till you're asked for it. Well, and I would say as principal, I'm just principal, right? But as associate and having like someone like Andrew, who's a very like dominating presence, I imagine that was like, it's hard to erase for people like where this is like what we hear a lot. And then if you come in, if you're just different than that, like not necessarily better or worse, like I'm sure that it's hard for them to erase their normal idea of like what they are used to hearing. Correct. I think that was part of it. Uh, One of the comments was just, your rotary sound isn't the same as Andrew's. I was like, I'm not Andrew. Yeah. It's like, what is that? Do I need to play with a richer sound? I wish. Like he's got this amazing rich sound. Like I was like, Oh, how am I going to do that? <laughs> like, I can't match that piece. Yeah. Like, uh, but then being a leader too, like I'm, I was 25 sitting beside guys that are 60, you know, that had been there for, for so long. So it's, it's luckily the section was great. Uh, Jim Sprague, our second was just, 
a rock. So fortunate to have him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I learned a ton and you just learn as you go. Right. Um, I, I, but it's funny. I, I equate it to this. Like I watch basketball and baseball, like, uh, so DeMar, you're, you're not a huge basketball fan, are you? So DeMar, DeMar DeRozan was our big star. He's now in San Antonio. San Antonio, we traded him for Kawhi, all that kind of stuff. When he started, he was, what, 19, 20? Was good, but not amazing. But guess what? The organization knows to you know, train these young, talented people, right? Yeah. They're not, they're not expecting them to play like they're 28 when they're 20, for example. Right. Whereas orchestra is different. And I always wonder, should it be different? If someone's young, should they just expect them to be as good as if they were 30 or 35 or 40 or 45 or 50? Or should they hire knowing the person will get better? And I think that's part of the challenge of hiring. Sure. It's the, it's, it's the question, will they get better? They can't trade that player away if they don't continue to improve, right? right so it's right. tricky, right? Like, Actually, I haven't been on a committee yet. The seven years, I've never been on a committee. I can't wait. Well, I'm, in a way, I'm nervous because I know the big decisions, but yeah, it's a lot a, of it. That's a, such an interesting point, too, because like, it totally depends on the culture, right? Of like, I, I've heard of, um, there's professional, you know, like professional trumpet players and, and big orchestras. I've heard them say things like, you know, we, these people that we hired that were younger, like we knew that they had tons of potential and we knew that they hadn't realized their potential yet. Mm-hmm. And so, but when we hired them, we're basically like, it is part of our job to like help them continue to grow exactly what you're saying. But then like I said, I know other orchestras are like, gotta be able to do the job and if you can't that's it like we'll find somebody who can yeah and that's yeah i think it just depends on the orchestra each one to each one but yeah that's why i I wonder like does a bigger orchestra have more tolerance for a talent a really talented younger person or less i think it just depends that totally uh on the committee on the section and all that kind of thing sure but yeah it's hard to know so um i i a lot of times towards the end of these interviews, I ask a question related to like suffering because I used to ask the question, like, do we need to suffer? And now I think that's a really dumb question. But what I'm interested in, and we've talked a little bit about it, so if it's maybe expanding upon something we've already talked about, that's fine. But I'm a huge believer. Essentially, what we're talking about is like, would we have done things differently? Do we wish things were different? But like, in my in my mind, no. Like, even though I've had some like really rough things happen, like, no, I'm glad because I am where I'm at right now. And so I'm kind of curious if there's anything you're willing to share. It can be professional or personal um, of ways that were like big struggles that you had that forced you that like were hard for you to go through, but then ultimately taught you like some important lessons about yourself, important lessons about who you want to become. And that sort of like, you're almost like glad for this insane struggle that you may have gone through. If there's anything that comes to your mind, I would be really interested in sort of just like hearing what you have to say. Yeah, well, for me, it's the biggest thing is my tenure process. It was like I hated going into work. I hated picking on my trumpet because I didn't know what to fix. I was like, what the heck? Like, I can go play well and then get told something weird. I'm like, I, I wasn't told what to fix. And the things I was told made no sense. And, pe- and some people said, don't listen to what you're being told. So I was like literally between two rocks, being trying to get better, but not knowing how, what to do to get better. Um. But as a result, I got better. I was able to do anything that was asked, I think. And that's something we always work on, but to play different ways, to expand your color palette, your volume palette, your your uh, articulation palette, everything like that. Uh, and I think now that I've gone through that, I can just go and play like it. Hey, here's how I play. 
take it or leave it. I think I am better because of that. Now that that weight's lifted, it's like, here I am. Like it or don't like it. And that actually goes back to think why I was successful at this audition is I, I realized that either I'm going to play the way I can play and it's going to be good or I'm going to kind of be timid and it might be good, but it's like, if I get everything, it's not going to be very good. Like not exceptional. I mean, yeah. So I think that's why I learned from the tenure process. just like, give it what you got. If it's, you know. Okay. I have maybe it's a hypothetical of course, but it might be a little bit of a challenging question. I'm kind of interested. Do you see your, um, your thought? Let's say you didn't get tenure. Like, let's say you went through this process and you were going crazy, but the result being that you got tenure, you're, you're saying, well, like, I got tenure. It's sort of behind me. I feel good. Like, I love my job. But, like, what if you didn't get tenure? Can you, like, can you sort of visualize or, or like, say, like, what you would have thought or where you might have been? One of two things would have happened. Uh, I like to think it wasn't the first one. One thing, first thing, would have, I, I would have quit, which I don't actually think I would have. That was probably just, like... Uh, not dark thoughts, but like frustrated thinking at that time. And then what I like to think would have happened, I would have been like, okay, all right, well, I learned something. Now let's go do it again and do it better. Maybe I wasn't meant to be in Toronto. Maybe I was meant to be somewhere else. You know, maybe I'll learn something. Maybe I'll have a different job or that's better. Or who knows? Who knows? I kind of looked at it that way. I never, again, never, in a way, I think ignorance is bliss in a lot of things. So I never thought of that way during the, the process. Uh, but if I hadn't gotten tenure, I would have hoped that I would have regrouped. And maybe I would have been more comfortable the next job I would have wanted. It would have been a better fit. I would have been more comfortable. I could have played like myself right away. Or just had more experience. So, But that's easier said than done, of course. Yeah, I think that's an important perspective, though. The the perspective of maybe this isn't the right fit. Like, not like maybe I failed completely, but maybe it's just not the right fit. Maybe I belong somewhere else. Is this, have you subscribed to this like kind of philosophy like your whole life that it's about fit or do you feel like this struggle sort of kind of brought you to this realization like how did you get to a place where you'd have this healthy of an outlook even in sort of a dire circumstance like that i think i was kind of raised with a bit of that like uh that definitely part of it like i know i still would have been i remember yeah i would have changed this perspective going back i remember when People ask me, what do you want to do? I want to play trumpet. Well, just enough so I can make a living. I didn't have the nuts to say, like, I want to be in an orchestra. <laughs> Until my first lesson with Barbara Butler before I auditioned. She's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, make a living playing trumpet? She's like, what orchestra do you want to be in? What do you want to do? So she, no, she said, do you want to be a soloist? Do you want to be an orchestra musician? What do you want to do? Give me your... I said, well, orchestra. What orchestra. Orchestra. And she said, what orchestra? My students get their goals. And I went, oh. Yeah, you know, it took. The, I wish I would have had that. Like, I want to be an orchestral player. I had the courage to say it earlier. Uh, but that was that's a thing. Like, if you can put food on your table, that's at that. To go back to your original question, it's always been more of an optimistic look. Like, it could be worse. I could be in a war torn country with nothing in yeah. famine. I always kind of compare it to that, which is a whole nother. It's intense. <laughs> it's really intense. <laughs> um. Okay, I want to poke a hole in that because I totally... She said this. She asked me the same exact question. Mm-hmm. It's a very... In my opinion, it's a it's an important question 
to ask, like, what do you want to do? Like, what does somebody want to do? Because it helps orient the work. It helps orient you and like what kind of person you might have to become in order to sustain that particular goal. If you want to be an orchestral musician and you can't show up on time to anything, you're probably not going to be successful. So not even in terms of playing, but what kind of person do you need to grow into? But myself, first and foremost, it can become like a, like almost a death sentence of like, you are, if you don't accomplish this goal that you said, you're a, a failure. And that Barbara, like, she's had so many people be successful that if you're not successful, like, it's not her fault. And I feel like that can be a really tricky line to walk between having a healthy goal that you're pursuing and, like, being completely defined by the realization of that goal, like, being what makes you a person. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Ooh, that that's a... It's a good question. Um, well, I always, I, I think it's always healthy to have a variety of interests too, right? Uh, that being said, it's never healthy to have like one track of like, I'm, I'm this period. I'm this, this is what I do. Period. That's it. If I, you know, then if that, let's say you're that way right now and you're an orchestral musician, you haven't worked in a year and that's all you do, which I'm sure a lot of people have had this. It's like, that's your whole identity is and your day-to-day life sucks, right? Cause you're yeah. so wrapped up in it. But then at the same time, we have to have that orchestral or not to be professional mission. You have to have that dedication and it overwhelms your life. So it's a, it's a tricky balance of, of health. And that's why I think it's cool. You have the weightlifting as another alley for, you know, it's just balance, right? Yeah, man. I feel like you were always ahead of the curve and having multiple interests in your life, I'd be like getting some food at, at, we're at the 602 Lake uh, where we live together. And I'd go into your room and I'd be like, what you doing, Steve? And you'd be like, I got a good lead on this S10 here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this Chevy S10. <laughs> and I'd be like, you, I mean, you like cared about like cars and you could fix stuff in our apartment. You built a drink shelf for our dartboard. Like, <laughs> like all sorts of stuff. You had all these other interests that made you Steve Woomer. And I thought that was so at the actually at the time it kind of drove me crazy a little bit because I didn't understand like I was so singularly minded mm. about the trumpet that it didn't make sense to me um, why it was not you know I mean you obviously you cared about the trumpet but you just weren't like me I feel like but you were like ahead of the curve in that way and now I'm like slightly envious almost that like I lived with you and I could have like learned but I was just so like oh my gosh like the trumpet is all and everything you know so yeah i was it's look reflecting back on that it's kind of impressive that you you've maintained multiple interests but seems like for a very long time yeah i don't know what that what that came from actually that's i couldn't tell you like i like growing up i just had those different interests i, I don't think i was committed to being a trumpet player until i was like my last year eyes with me as part of it i don't know uh like right now i have too many hobbies I'm like I gotta, I gotta get rid of some toys like they're all old and cheap toys. I'm like, hey, I've got to focus on like doing one thing really well in terms of like a hobby. But uh, I think it's just balance. It's it's healthy. You should never be f- that focused on one thing ever. I think for for wellness. Uh, but again, it's tricky because we need to have that. Again, I'm contradicting what I said before about walking down the street being like, how can I play my low G better? Right. So. Sure. It's, it, it's it's balanced essentially, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've learned. I think that word is just 
is it. Like in your playing, it's balance. Like, are you playing low and playing high? Are you playing loud and are you playing soft? Like all of these different types of balance. But then in our life, like you're describing too, just being able to step away and not be a trumpet player and be like master, you know, smokesman or whatever you're doing, like in your house right now, smoking some meat. <laughs> My first time, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, but being able to be something different, right? And what taught me this more than anything is like being a dad and being a husband, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, they are cool with me playing the trumpet, but that's not the most important part about me to them. Totally. Actually, yeah, I remember one time being like seven or something, being like, what does daddy do for a living? Like to my mom, like she, or my brothers, and they're like, plays trumpet. Like, what do you mean, plays trumpet? Like, what? Yeah, like, he's just... they, that wasn't even like a thing. It's like, you're just like, that's another part of your life, right? Sure. And arguably a, big, a bigger part, arguably. Uh, yeah, balance on everything, I think, is the key. You said it. Well, do you have any final thoughts, man? This has been so cool to be able to like talk to you. For me, this has been cool to be able to talk to you like an adult instead of the normal interactions I've had with you in my entire life. This has been cool to like, like actually, I, I mean, it, I'm, I'm going to be like really real right now because like I have this memory. I have these memories, right, of like our time together. And it's like, I, I just feel like now I'm able to talk to you like you're like, Steve Wumert, a person who cares about things and not like Steve Wumert, only my drinking buddy, even though like we did the 10 or 12 days of drinking and whatever those things, you know, like we did some, we had some fun times, but I feel like back then I couldn't see people for like people. I saw them for like, oh, I drink with you. This is fun. Hmm. And so it's like really, that's because I just didn't see myself as anything other than that. Right. So you're saying you're using me for your drinking buddies? Uh, uh, yeah, you are one of the best drinking buddies ever. But it's nice to be able to like talk to you and like get to know you, you know you almost after all this time. So yeah, well, um, yeah I uh, I don't know if you have any final thoughts about any other stuff you may have written down that we didn't get to that you kind of want to share real quick here. Uh, let me take a quick peek here. I think we've done a pretty good job of getting it. Uh, No, I think we hit hit all this stuff. Sweet. I, I like I like what you talked about the end balance kind of what's a, a good thing for life and, or diet or anything. It's is Rachel getting a beer right now? No. Oh, that was my was that noise? Yeah. Oh no, I hit my leg on the table. Oh, it sounded like somebody opened up a fridge and then I felt like I heard a popped up. Popped up. <laughs> Although I do have to this is a quick hilarious story. Yeah. Is watching the inauguration yesterday. Oh, I'm I'm a dual since I was watching it. And interested uh, when Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace, all I could think about was him finishing Amazing Grace and then going into Long Neck Bottle. Long <laughs> Neck Bottle, uh, Let go of my hand. yeah. But that was a nice performance in all seriousness. It was a nice performance he did. And was it Matt Harding playing the I think introduction? So. I think yeah, so. That was beautiful. Uh, but yeah, no, it's I, I, thanks for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure, was absolutely, man. Um, I don't know if there are ways. Uh, I try to like, you know, have ways of, of people being able to contact my guests if that's something that my guests are interested in. Sorry, if my audience is interested in doing. I know you're not super active on social media. I don't know if there's any way that someone could contact you if they were like, hey, I liked your uh, your episode there and I wanted to let you know. Is there a way people can contact you? Oh, uh, why well, check my Facebook Messenger uh, or my email? I don't know if you would put that somewhere. Uh, 
Yeah, I'm on Facebook Messenger and stuff. I have a profile. I'm not on it all the time. Yeah, so check Steve Woomert. I'll probably yeah. put that in the... Uh... Yeah. I think I'm the only one. Woomert's a rare name. There's a few of us that have pro- popped up around the world now. But yeah. We're the only ones in Canada. So just look for Toronto and Woomert and you'll get me. Get that. Um, if you need to get a hold of me, you can do so at thatsnotspit.com or That's Not Spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate it if you'd give it a rating and a review on iTunes. That would really help out a lot, and uh, I would appreciate it. Don't forget to share this episode on social media as well so other people can find it. Steven, it's good to see you. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I think it's great what you're doing, uh, highlighting a lot of awesome topics and, and issues. Yeah, thanks, dude. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Mm